My name is Jared Mayer. Um, I've been aware in some capacity or another of my depression since I was about 10 years old. Although I became, I think, diagnosed, clinically diagnosed with bipolar depression when I was about 24 or 25. What was that like? Um, I had reached a point where I was kind of like spiraling out of control. Um, I was, I was just like the mindset that I was in was completely, um, erratic and it was costing me friendships. It was costing me, um, that almost cost me my job at the time. Um, it kind of put a thorn in a relationship that I was kind of pursuing at the time. And so <clears throat> this wasn't the first time that this had happened to me. It happened a couple of times in my early twenties, earlier than that, um, like 21, 22. And, but it was the first time that like, I felt like I really needed to get help. So my job at the time offered, uh, five like therapy sessions for free before you needed to kind of like, before it kicked in with your insurance or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to utilize that. And, uh, the process with that is they give you a number to call. And then um, you call that number and they ask you a series of questions like, uh, you know, what's going on? How do you feel? Are you, have you ever harmed yourself? Are you considering harming yourself? Um, those sorts of things. And then you kind of explain like what you're hoping to get, which is I'd like to find someone to speak with. And they send you a list of providers in your area that work with this program um, so that, you know, you get your five free sessions or whatever. And um, <clears throat> so I picked up, um, a doctor from there and it wasn't the first time that I had gone to therapy, but it had been the first time in like years and in previous experiences with that, I, I, the doctors that I found, I didn't really vibe with very well. And this particular doctor I got along with right away. Mm -hmm. Um, and so through the course of like talking, you know, and I, I extended it past the five sessions, um, for a while, but over the course of talking, you know, once he started like breaking down, what I was going through and, and really diagnosing, um, kind of the, the issues that I had, anxiety, bipolar depression, and the more research that I did into that and like recognizing like mood swings, it's, it's more than just like a mood swing. It's, uh, like a, almost like a chemical, um, extreme. Mm -hmm. like you go from one, uh, like a normally like you're balanced and then you go into a complete imbalance. I started, you know, being able to put a, a name and a face to past experiences that I'd had with this and like past, past swings and past, uh, really horrible bouts. And, um, it just was like a light bulb kind of flicked on, mm -hmm. you know, it was now I could see, um, now I could explain what it was that I was going through. And while I couldn't like excuse, you know, some of the things that like I did, like I said, horrible things to, friends in an effort to like push them away or because I didn't think that I deserved them. Um, or because there was just no filter at the mm -hmm. time, like it doesn't excuse any of that, but like now I could kind of recognize where that was coming from. And since then it's like helped me be able to like, once something like that starts to come on me, uh, it's helped me kind of recognize the symptoms. Um, when I, when I realize that I'm starting to get, um, shaky mm -hmm. and, um, if I, find myself in a throw like that. Like if I'm having a panic attack or if I find that I'm like really bipolar depressed, um, I know like more now what kind of steps I would need to take or if I need help, like how, 
how to help or, or when to reach out for it, that kind of thing. So it's been, um, when I first got that lesson to answer your question, uh, like I said, it was like a light bulb going on and then, um, it kind of put like an impetus in me to learn more about it and find ways to try to address it and live with it. Mm -hmm. Do you think that by being able to identify it, you are able to cope with it better? Like you, you're able to identify those, those ticks and those types of signs like you said, with your friends, you know, you'd start saying mean things to them. You're like, okay, I think maybe something's coming on right now. And now I need to kind of maybe like hunker down and start focusing on how to like work through this episode. Yeah. Um, it has in a lot of ways. There's like, it's, it's still, a a constant, you don't overcome it for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's still like a constant struggle. Uh, you know, a few years after that, when I first moved down to Belize, you know, I was coming out of like a breakup and I was like 6,000 miles away from home and I was in a place where I didn't know anybody. And like, just, I mean, it was at every little thing at that point was just exacerbating the situation. There was like your typical, uh, breakup grief and then the loneliness and the isolation. And then I got sick and then the sickness like just wore down my body. Mm -hmm. And so there, you know, there are certain, situations that make it worse but like recognizing how bad it is i think the the biggest change for me since then is being more open and asking for help when i needed it mm -hmm. um there were a lot of times where i tried to like just struggle with it by myself and it uh got really dark and really bad in ways that i wasn't sure that i could overcome and there's been um a few times uh where I, I may not have been able to if I hadn't been able to ask for help. And I think that, like, you know, I've lost a lot of friends to suicide and to depression-related, um, you know, results, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, <clears throat> so I guess for that reason, like, seeing so many people around me uh, – not ask for help when they needed it, whether because they, they didn't, they just didn't want it or because they didn't feel like they could. Um, one of the biggest things for me now is to be aware of my own, uh, limitations. Mm -hmm. And then also to just kind of spread awareness about that as well, as much as I can to try to like destigmatize it. Because if the concern is that people might think that you're weaker or make fun of you or something like that, and that's, what's holding you back like what other recourse do you have? Mm -hmm. So the more people that think that it, you know, that are okay with being able to be vulnerable in that moment and to reach out to people. Um, and the more people who maybe don't have those afflictions, but know people or around people that do, you know, if they can sort of recognize those things and be a little bit more sensitive to the situation, um, hopefully it won't reach those extremes. Do you remember the, the first time you asked for help? Yeah. Um, I was, uh, oh man, I must've been like 17 or 18. I think I only told this story like once. <laughs> um, I don't know what I was going through. It was a long time ago and I've, you know, been through a lot since then. 
but uh, I was like seriously, I think contemplating suicide and I didn't know how I was going to do it or what I was going to do, but I was just kind of in a really lost dark place. And I was, uh, I just started drinking. I wasn't old enough to buy alcohol. So I don't know how I, I had a lot of friends that did mm-hmm. somehow I ended up with like a bottle of rum and I had probably drank about half of it. And then I took off in this car and I was in, uh, the parking lot of borders books, which I think now is, a neurological center <laughs> yeah in anchorage <laughs> yeah yeah and it must have been like a friday night or like a saturday night or something like that and um it's the middle of the night and there was this girl who was a really close friend of mine at the time and she i was on my phone or something this is i think it was back on like uh no it must not have been my phone i must have had like my laptop because this is before smartphones really okay um or they were just out or something like that. And I was like the last person to get one. So I, I must have like taken my laptop out and I was using like the Wi-Fi at the bookstore. And I must have been on online and using like um, MSN Messenger or AOL Instant Messenger or something like yeah. that. And I was talking to one of my friends and I, I told her, you know, that I was like in a really dark place and that I was thinking about like internet. And she ended up driving out to the bookstore in the middle of the night and just like holding my hand for like an hour Mm -hmm. and just talking with me. And, uh, I think I cried and she like made me stop drinking because I took the bottle with me. And then, um, we basically stayed there until I was like sober enough to drive home. And then, uh, yeah, that was pretty, pretty rough. I haven't talked to that girl in like years. I don't know, but that was probably like the first time that it wasn't the first time that I like, I wanted to die, but I think that was the first time that like I reached out to someone and they came out and like, you know, stayed, spent time with me. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what you were thinking at that point? Like what kind of, like what brought you to that moment? Asking for help or, or the dark moment, the dark moment. I don't, I don't remember. It could have been any number of things. It was like, that was high school. Um, and maybe, maybe it doesn't need to be specific. Maybe if you were to look at it in general terms, like what, what, can bring you to those places sure so um there's like a general sense of like unworthiness uh when i when i was going through high school i wasn't like a. I had a lot of i knew a lot of people but i wasn't like a popular kid people would say hi to me and stuff like that and i i was in theater like my junior and senior year so i got to know like people from all different places but I never got like invited to parties or I never got invited to like, you know, hang out or anything like that. I, I had a really <clears throat> niche group of friends, um, but I always felt kind of like an outsider. So there was like just this general sense of not belonging or, um, you know, not being worthwhile. Um, in high school, I found out I was adopted. So there was like a whole other slew of issues like you know, why didn't they want to be a part of my life? And, mm-hmm. uh, why did they wait so long to tell me? And all oh, my life is a lie. There's, um, I think a lot of existential issues that plague most people, which is, I thought that I would be a lot further in life than I am now, where I would have these things that other people have. Um, comparing yourself to others is a, is a pitfall that a lot of people fall into. Yeah. Um, and those are, 
those are some of the things. Uh, I think if you have trouble at home, that can be a lot of it. Or if you're bullied, that can be a lot of it, you mm-hmm. know, because if you don't have anybody that can stick up for you, um, or if you're not feeling like, uh, like you're, you know, being loved or, or that people are proud of you. There's a lot of things that make you just feel by like isolated by yourself without any sort of like resources to um, build yourself up on or, or friends or family to rely on to, mm-hmm. you know, as support systems. And there are a lot of things, especially like in school growing up and everything like that, that um, kind of reinforce those things. If you ever are forced into a group project and no one wants to be with you, mm-hmm. or if you're like the last person picked on dodgeball, or if they have like Sadie Hawkins where all the girls are asking guys to go dance with them yeah, and you don't yeah. get asked. Um, so there's a, a lot of different stuff like that, that as you're getting older, almost feel like, uh, to someone that has depression or someone that has like anxiety, it just takes a lot of like normal things and makes them abnormal or makes mm-hmm. them ext- like worse. Amplifies them. Amplifies them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I wrote this question down as we were talking and you can answer it or, or not answer it, but what's it like or what's it been like when someone close to you has committed suicide when they've done something that you have thought about? So, um, the thing with like thinking about suicide a lot of the time is that like, it's a very in the moment kind of thing. Mm hmm. A lot of times, you know, I don't think most people go into it, planning it for like weeks or months at a time. I did for a while, but, um, I think that most of the time it's like a spontaneous thing. And so when you're in the throes of that depression or that anxiety, it's like hard to get out of bed. Like it just feels like a weight, like a blackness just pressing down on you. And once you're through it, Um, you can kind of look back at it and just say, you know, like, holy, you know, that, that was a rough, that was holy shit. That was, uh, just a really tough time. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm glad I don't feel like that any longer, like to that extreme. So when someone that is close to me, um, succumbs to that, I guess it's frustrating because, uh, you feel like you could have done something, you know, even if you, even if there was really nothing that you could have done, there's been friends that like I spoke with the night before or partied with the week before, uh, that never brought it up and seemed like they were doing fine. Mm-hmm. And then I get a call or a text or something like that. And it just kind of blindsides you. And it's, it's frustrating because you know, what it's like to be like in that darkest moment and uh, you know, just like the wrong thought or the wrong step away from, from taking it a little bit further. Um, But it's like when you survive and then a friend of yours just decides that like um, that they're tired of going through it over and over again, it's uh, it just sucks. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not really an eloquent way to put it. It sucks. Yeah. Yeah, I've been in situations where I have had one friend in my mind right now who recently passed away. Um, 
committed suicide where you go back and you look at their last Facebook, mm-hmm. you know, things like that where you're like, okay, this is, this was a moment when, you know, me or one of his other friends could have potentially stopped it. But I wonder, I wonder if that's even worth thinking about, you know, if, if it's one of those things where you can continue to beat yourself up over it or recognize that maybe that person was unfortunately beyond your help. I have a friend um, who passed away a couple years ago. uh, I guess a few years ago now, but back in like the MySpace day, she and I, so it's, it's weird. So she was part of a band and I was really close with the band mostly online, but I saw them play, you know, a few times and we became friends like more than just like fans but friends and mm-hmm. so we kept in touch on social media platforms and stuff like that and she and i became um strangely close like back in the myspace days and later on when it moved to facebook in that uh we would reach out to each other through private messages whenever one of us was like feeling down and we would discuss you know how we were feeling and how hard things were and um just kind of not necessarily help, you know, we didn't, we weren't a a cure for each other, but we kind of helped each other commiserate and like, you know, make each other feel like less alone, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and that helped me a lot too when I was like 16, 17, 18. And then a few years ago I was in, uh, Europe, I was in Ireland and I was talking to a friend of mine who also knew this girl and, um, just mentioned like, you know, she had moved to Australia and didn't seem to be doing well. And I mentioned, uh, you know, like I should, it's been a while since I've talked to her. I should reach out to her. And I made a conscious decision. I was like, you know, when I get home, I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I spent about another week in Europe and I flew back after that week and I had a layover in the States before I went back up to Alaska and I got off the plane um, on my layover and turned my phone back on and got a bunch of messages saying that she had passed the night before. Mm. And all I could think about, and it still bothers me to this day is that if I hadn't waited a week, if I had texted her that night, cause I had wifi everywhere and struck up a conversation with her, could I have helped her again, not feel so alone so that when things kind of got rough, you know, maybe she'd, could have known that she could have reached out to me mm-hmm. instead of passing away the way that she did. Yeah. And, um, I had conversations with her bandmates and stuff like that who, you know, logically to me, it makes sense that no, there was nothing I could have done once she made that decision. You know, that was her decision to make, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, there's always that what if, and I'm one of those people that <laughs> likes to get bogged down in what if. So, it still bugs me, but do you think that making it out of that, that blackness, the first time you did it, that that has helped you deal with the future dark times? Um, I don't know. Not really, you know, to be honest. Um, not really like I, I had a, if that first time was when I was 17, sometime somewhere between 16 to 18, mm-hmm. um, it got worse when I was 22. It got worse when I was 29 and moved to 
Belize. That was the worst I think that it had ever been. Um, Do you think that that was because you were so isolated? I think there were a number of factors that went into that. Okay. Yeah. There was, there was a lot going on with me then. Um, but you know, it's kind of hard to say. Cause when I was like, when I was 22, I was, um, I was living in Los Angeles at the time and I was going through like just a horrible time with this girl that like, it was, to this day, it was like the only person I ever thought I was going to marry. Mm-hmm. And she and I had broken up over the summer. I had like uh, left to go back up to Alaska for the summer to um, make some money. Cause I was making jack shit in LA and I uh, flew back down, but she and I had broken up and then she just expressed no interest in getting back together. And I just kind of like lost it a little bit. Um, not a little bit. It was a lot of it. <laughs> I, uh, um, it was, I was like so madly in love with her and I had, was alone in Los Angeles. I was the only Alaskan down there. All of my friends were her friends. I had to work with her in the same area of the store. And so I saw her all the time and mm-hmm. any party that I went to, I'd see her flirt with other guys. And then I was like, just barely making ends meet. And, um, things were going good for me. Like really they were, I, I was like on a fast track for promotions. I just gotten like two raises in the course of a month. Like things were going great, but I went into, this is before I knew about bipolar depression and I just tilted headlong into this um, spiral and I was drinking all the time, which doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, and I, I knew that it didn't help. I was like old enough to know better, but like, I just didn't care. I was like in a full blown self-destructive mode. I started stealing shit. I started like, um, I don't know, man, I was just I was picking fights. Um, and I ended up, uh, like barely dodging like a felony theft embezzlement charge with my work. Really? Yeah. And, um, which... I mean, like I copped everything right away. I was just like, I think just ready for it all to be kind of over. Yeah. Um, and, but because I like copped to it and because I paid back like everything that I owed that day and then, um, almost double that, uh, cause I did, I did it, um, like a state charge. They're able to charge me on top of that. So, but I paid all of that, but like I lost my job. Um, my ex-girlfriend didn't talk to me for like five years after that half of my friends, I was a pariah to them. Um, the half that still talked to me were like, not the people that I would have expected to talk to me. There were people that like, I didn't even really get along that well with beforehand. Why do you think that is? I think because like they, they didn't give a shit. There was no feeling of like personal betrayal, I guess. Okay, I see. Like maybe they just didn't, uh, hold me on like a pedestal of some sort. Okay. Or expect better of me or something. Yeah. They probably always knew I was kind of a piece of shit or something like that. They're like, oh, yeah, I could see that guy stealing. But like, but here's the thing too, is like a lot of people felt like, um, I, I don't know, like I betrayed them somehow, but mm-hmm. like none of the stuff that I took was like from any of them. And the only person that like really suffered out of that was like me rightfully so. But I mean, like, um, I don't know. Like, I just didn't feel like I personally wronged any of them. So it hurt, you know, when mm-hmm. some of the people that. I thought liked me more wouldn't listen at least to, to anything like an apology even. Um, but you know, maybe I didn't deserve it. I don't know. 
the end result of that was that I uh, ended up having to move out of state because I didn't have, I couldn't find a job and I couldn't support myself or anything like that. And I ended up moving up to Seattle um, to crash on my friend's couch and I was in debt. I had spent like that Los Angeles was like my dream place to go. And I had spent all of my money and blood, sweat and tears literally. And I lost everything. And it was all because I just couldn't handle my, what I was going through, what I was feeling. Um, and I wasn't reacting in a mature way. Um, I didn't know what was going on with me. Mm -hmm. I just like when you're in the throes of that, that thing, it doesn't feel extreme. Some of it feels wrong. You know that you're not doing something that you should, or you know that maybe something that you're doing is self-destructive, but you don't realize like how bad it is mm -hmm. um, until until it's over, and you look back and you're like, "Holy shit, what a whirlwind!" Yeah. Uh, so I was in I was in Seattle, and I got um, my friend helped me with this job doing uh, like video game testing. And I was in this cubicle and they didn't like have the lights on in this place. It was like an entire floor of this building set up for video game testing. And they had uh, several different games going and they had, you know, a dozen people or 20 people assigned to different games. So the ceiling lights were all off. And then you were just in your cubicle with like the light of your computer monitors and your television. So I'm sitting there and I was like the lowest that I'd ever been. I felt because I'd lost everything. And, uh, you know, some of my friends were a year or two away from graduating college and I didn't do that. And so mm -hmm. I'm just like, I'm just in my head. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to, if I don't have one of three things by the time I hit 30, like I'm going to kill myself at 30. And I was like, I, I want to either have like a home that I can call my own or a career that I'm like passionate about and doing well in, or I'm in a relationship where there's like a sense of mutual love and compassion, like something worth living for something that I can call my own possession or that I'm good at. And, uh, that's crazy. That's like <laughs> to even entertain that kind of a notion or to put a deadline on your life like that. But I think that like, that's also kind of the same mentality that some other people have, you know, it's like if they, they don't feel, and again, it's hard to not compare yourself to others. And it's hard not to feel like there's a specific track that you're supposed to be on. Mm hmm instead of just doing the things for your life that kind of feel right in the moment um, or that bring you like a personal sense of satisfaction. When you made that, that promise to yourself that if you didn't accomplish one of those things by 30, how did you feel? How did that make you feel? <clears throat> you would think that I'd feel more motivated. <laughs> um, I don't know. It, it, I, it, I, it was a very, um, matter of fact thing to me, uh, like cut and dry. Mm -hmm. You're either going to do it or you don't. And if you don't, then 30 years on planet earth, like that's to me at the time, you know, that felt like a good run, mm -hmm. you know, you can do a lot in 30 years and I have, um, just not one of those things. Just not one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. It, it almost seems like just from knowing you, it seems like, at that point, you were almost creating what would potentially be kind of this self-fulfilled prophecy because you can look at other things like all the books you've written, right? Like those are a monumental accomplishment. Some people just want to write one book, you know, and they can't even motivate themselves to do that. 
So the things that you have put into this promise for yourself, maybe those are things that maybe unconsciously they're really not that important to you. You know, yeah, maybe. Um, I don't, I've, I've been in several relationships since then in the last eight years and some not even relationships, just like flings or chance encounters or whatever. Um, I've never met someone. I don't think that I've like felt that I would marry since then, but I've fallen in love several times, you know, and, um, and had like a lot of rewarding interactions with, with, uh, with women that, um, that were very fulfilling and inspiring. And I have, um, yeah, I've written books, you know, and they don't really sell well, but like, I'm proud of them. And, um, I've had one book in particular, you know, I've had more than one person tell me that it's in their top five favorite books that they've ever read, Mm -hmm. which is insane to me. But I've said before, I think maybe even on the last podcast that I did with you that, I think my ultimate goal with writing is that if I can make one person have an escape from the stressors of their day or one person feel like they're not alone Mm -hmm. or one person feel something that maybe they didn't feel before, um, that's the goal, right? It, It shouldn't, if you're getting into art for monetary reasons, I think you're in it for the wrong reasons. Um, you should be doing art because they're stories that you want to tell or pictures that you want to make, or you want to invoke some sort of thought or emotion in someone. And Mm -hmm. I've done that. So I think in that sense that I I have been successful, which is great. And I think that that's something that that's something that I think comes with age. So when I first started crude, when it was just a magazine, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and it's going to make money, you know, and I can basically do the thing that I've always wanted to do, which is write or, you know, create art and be able to be paid for it. But, um, for one reason or another, it, it didn't work in that iteration. And then it evolved into this, the podcast and how I've looked at these episodes, whether it's, you know, whether it's a crude conversations or whether it's a special conversation or whether it's a lost anchorage, it's like, gathering all of these different stories which i've always wanted to do and in my mind i'm like okay it's going to be a book you know it's going to be in written form but you know the reality of it is it wasn't and so all that to say that i'm not making a million dollars off this but when i look back on it you know however many episodes it's been so far i'm like i feel really proud of it and in the same way that i I hope that you feel proud of your books yeah I, i do it's um Never in the moment. It's like, I hate the act of writing, but always when I'm finished with it, I'm like, oh, I did that thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can look back on it and be like, okay, I did that. So I could do it again. Yeah. You know? Well, actually, you know, and it's it's funny that you mentioned that because w- when I was 22, when I made that um, that ultimatum for myself, I that was when I f- started writing my first book, What Would Become Waypoint, mm-hmm. um, was I, I wrote it then. I, I didn't have anything. I felt really lost. And so I had, uh, we moved from Seattle, my friend and I out to Redmond, Washington, one of those two story apartment, just the two of us. And, uh, man, I just felt like really adrift. He and I didn't, he was like my best friend, but, um, we didn't make any other friends really in town. So 
I spent a lot of time by myself just kind of like picking up the pieces of my life and trying to just, you know, glad to have an income again or whatever, but feeling I never planned on living in Washington. And um, I um, was going through my backpack one day and I found like these three chapters of this project that I had started and never really went anywhere with. And uh, I was just kind of reading through them again and um, pulled out my laptop and then just started working on it. And I would work until that. I like, I have never since then worked as hard as I did on that first book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) To be honest, I was like staying up till four in the morning. I was writing like 3000 words a day, which is crazy. Um, Stephen King only writes 2000. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now I I do hear me saying only 2000 is a lot. It is. Yeah. Um, the standard for, for anyone that's listening that might not know, 2,000, a lot of people will say that it's about 200 words to a page. So 2,000 words would be about 10 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done, I've counted a lot of like traditional paperbacks and I found it to be closer to like 240 words per page. So that's that's what I go off of um, when I try to calculate my progress. But nowadays, like I'll do, you know, ideally 1,000 words a day. I work a full-time job. So yeah, it's, you know, when I get time to write, I'm usually exhausted, but. At the time, anyway, when I was writing my first book, like, I think that I just clung to it because it was the first thing that, like, felt like it gave me kind of purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that excited me. It was new. It was my first time doing long-form fiction. And there were enough, like, conceptual ideas there that, uh, like, really just um, distracted me from just this fucking, like, car crash that I'd left behind me. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I was driven too because like I had done an initial outline for the for what I I always knew that it was going to be like a trilogy and I'd done kind of like a loose outline for it and I sent it to like my AP language and composition teacher and he goes oh I think it's maybe enough for like one book and then I wrote three fucking books like half yeah. a million words and I cast like 40 some characters it turned into something really cool I think mm-hmm. um <clears throat> although as we discussed you know that could use some polish 10 years later I think that everybody looks at their earlier works and critiques them like that. You know, mm-hmm. you're on, you're always going to be your worst critic. Yeah. Um, but that, I think like that spawned out of, I've done six books now and it's spawned from that loss of control and that feeling of uh, confusion and, and aimlessness. I think. Do you think that they help make sense of kind of the world you're living in or even your life? Yeah. Yeah. So sort of reading for me has always been an escape. Mm -hmm. The first time that I remember ever just wanting to die, I was like 10 years old. I just remember like freaking the fuck out in the back of the school bus. Like, I just want to die. And everyone's like, Oh, just being dramatic. And I'm like, (laughs) I just want like this pain to stop. I want this like feeling of, um, like, not being loved or, you know, being, you know, whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, and I got bullied a lot. You know, I, I grew up, I had, uh, glasses and like the world's worst bowl cut for a long time. <laughs> and then like, I liked to read. I liked, you know, I liked to learn. Yeah. And that wasn't cool in my school, you know, um, to always know the answer or to like be always stuck reading. But to me <clears throat> early on reading was an escape and it was how I kind of like, I was able to go to worlds that were not 
the world that was so hard to live in. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a world full of magic and wonder and aliens or, you know, just, or spooky things, you know, whatever it was that I was reading at the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was a way for me to kind of like live vicariously through these protagonists that found strength and courage to overcome, you know, whatever was bothering them and, and hurting them. And, um, that kind of carried through. And so while waypoint may have been just kind of like initially to start, just kind of a way to channel a lot of that lost energy into something productive into something tangible. Um, I think that books that I've written since then, well, read in Denver came out of a, a failed relationship. And so, uh, there was a lot of like negative energy that went to that. And I think that that one, I think resonated with a lot of people because there was a lot of feelings that are, um, universally felt, you mm-hmm. know, the feeling of fucking something up, um, feeling passionate about a person or art, um, or music, uh, the feeling of grief and, um, the, struggles that come with a breakup with someone that you care a lot about. I mean, there's a lot of things out there that felt real because they came from a real spot. And I think that that resonated with a lot of people and made them feel not so alone feeling some of those things. Um, but books like absolute zeros, which is very much just a sci-fi action adventure and a romp. Mm-hmm. Um, I write it because it's fun because it's just fun to imagine exciting fictional settings. But I think that people who read it, like it because it allows them to have that same kind of escape that I had when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Like they get home and they don't want to think about how much they're going to have to pay for their utilities or something. They just want to sit down for an hour and just not think about anything else except traveling through space. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just, that's fun. how I read it. Yeah. When, when it first came out, I, I bought it and it was, uh, the middle of winter. So it was the middle of last winter when I read it. And I remember looking forward to, and this is before I had like a Kindle or something like that, right? I was reading, I was reading, it's like over 700 words or 700 pages. And I read the entire thing on my phone. And <laughs> I remember just looking forward to like laying down and, you know, getting ready for bed and reading, you know, reading this book that kind of takes me somewhere else besides, I guess, Alaska in the wintertime, you know? Yeah. So, um, and I shouldn't say Alaska in the wintertime. I, I mean, the darkness. Right. You know. Which if you're from Alaska, you know all too well that six months of just lingering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> black sky. And it can be very oppressive, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that having those escapes is super important. I agree entirely. I think that, um, yeah, I think that too much focus on on especially now, like in the climate that we have currently, like there's so much negative energy and um oppressive news things that just are uh it's kind of hard to struggle through it all there's like and and these are things that everyone should be upset and mad about but i think that living 24 hours a day in that mindset and surrounded by that is um unhealthy Mm -hmm. and so to be able to have kind of a an escape in any book or music or um you know or art or you know if you get it from watching TV, mm-hmm. like I'm the last person to judge someone from watching too much, you know, streaming <laughs> Netflix for days on end. If it like, if it helps them have some sort of catharsis, like why spend life on this earth in just a constant state of misery? Like if you have a chance to find something that makes you feel satisfied 
or comforted. Mm-hmm. Um, you should never feel ashamed for enjoying that. I don't think. I wanted to go back to something you said about when you were 10 years old and you were in the back of the bus and mm. you were saying, you know, I just want to die. Did you tell your parents that any of this was going on? Oh, no. 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 My I lived with my grandparents. They uh, adopted me when I was like five. And they were, um, you know, very loving. They were great. Like, I have nothing bad to say about <laughs> my home life there. I wasn't, like, beaten as a kid or anything. Um, but, like, my dad lived at the house as well. And he was, like, always drunk and just gone most of the time. And then as I got older, he was like in and out of jail or in and out of the state um, or in and out of jail in a different state. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then my mom was like, uh, you know, just in and out of rehab in a constant non-figure in my life. And my stepdad is a, you know, was a abrasive figure who I love very much, but he was just difficult to get along with. Mm. And uh, I think like when I, you go to school and like, kids are making fun of you for learning or reading and then they make fun of you because you don't have parents like Mm -hmm. you know most people do it's just hard you know and then like my my grandmother is very loving and if i had told her that i'm sure she would have in fact like you know i'm sure that she recognized that something was wrong because i did go see like a child psychologist when i was a kid who incidentally i sold a phone to like 20 years later really and he he did not recognize me why would he but like um, but I thought it was really funny cause I was like, Oh man, like I saw you when I was a kid. And then he was just like, did not care did not give a single shit. Really? Yeah. And, uh, but then at the end, at the end of the transaction, he's like, so did I help? And I was like, no, <laughs> really? <laughs> oh yeah. I mean like, what am I going to say? Like what was his reaction after you said that? Was, I don't know. He didn't say much, but okay. he didn't seem too into the conversation <laughs> before that. So I don't know why I was like trying to win me over at the end. Yeah. Do you know if anyone in your biological family suffers from <clears throat> depression? My mom. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And did you ever get the chance to see how she worked through her depression? She hasn't. Oh, she hasn't? No. Okay. I mean, no. It's tough because I don't really have a close relationship with my mom. I love her very much, but like speaking with her makes me very anxious. Um, and I think it's just because she's been so out of my life for so long that now she is just kind of desperate to know everything about it. And I'm not that open of a person in person. Most of the time Mm -hmm. Um, I I do most of my speaking and feeling through blog posts or writing things like that, things that I have a comfortable distance from. And uh, so it's just, it's touchy to kind of like have a conversation in general, let alone something that comes with such deep rooted emotional turmoil. Mm hmm. But, uh, you know, I, I think that she's doing better now and I'm, I hope that she is and I'm glad if she is, but, um, I haven't really like, uh, had a round table conversation with her. You know, I just thought of this, that a lot of people probably have the opportunity to, if they have depression, see how their mom or their dad or their grandma, you know, somebody near to them actually works through it. But from what you just said, you don't have a close relationship with your mom. She does suffer from depression. 
she wasn't that that figure to help you move through it. So you just had to deal with this on your own. Yeah, I did. Um, when my grandfather passed away, a friend of mine who I was not very close with at the time, um, I had met her. She was the cousin of a friend of mine, actually. I had met her at a house party. And we'd kind of hit it off because we have similar personalities. But I didn't really know her. And when my grandfather passed away, she just randomly reached out to me because her dad had passed away um, not long before. And we sort of bonded through like a mutual grief, grieving process. Mm-hmm. But it was like, um, I think that she was like eight months or a year removed from it. And it was still very immediate for me. And I think that like we kind of had, it was maybe easier because I didn't know her that well um, to kind of go over these similar feelings that we were both going through and these like um, these what ifs and these wish I had last conversations and that sort of thing or, you know, missed opportunities and kind of commiserate over that. Um, I think that sometimes it's easier for people to find solace or understanding and someone they don't know or someone they don't know well because there's less pressure Mm -hmm. there's not years of history there's not uh you know a really deep complex relationship there's no expectations or anything like that um if i told someone if i told a therapist for example these horrible things that i'm feeling I don't need to worry about whether or not that person thinks I'm fucking crazy or not because I don't know them. Mm-hmm. Like I, I have no, I'm not beholden to them in any sort of way. I don't have a relationship that I'm worried about straining. Um, and so some, you know, really if it feels like talking to someone that you know is too much pressure, I think that people that are struggling that maybe don't feel like they have somebody should just find uh, someone that they don't know. And just like any sort of outlet can be a good one. Um, and the less pressure that you feel on yourself to be honest and to be real um, is is better, I think. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I'm still alive, though. So. so you alluded to this earlier, and I feel like this is kind of the path that we're, we're headed anyway. Um, so I was hoping we could talk about it more, and that is about your social media mm. and how you you use it as kind of this therapy tool to just kind of get things out there. Does that sound correct? So, yeah, I mean, sort of, I think here's the thing. Go ahead. Ask your question. Actually, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, no. And I think that maybe what I did was I simplified it and cause I, I have you on social media. So I know you do, you do movie reviews. You do a lot more than just talk about your depression. But what I'm talking about here is specifically those posts about your depression, kind of getting it out there into the world. Do you think that those are therapeutic? No. No. Okay. <laughs> I mean, for the individual, maybe. Like the, the person that's making the posts. But um, when you look at something like... I think Facebook right now is probably the worst. And I'm not talking about just like on a on the way that the companies run or anything like that. I think that it's just a, a steaming pile of shit in terms of content for the most part. It's a misery machine. But do you think that... You Hold writing on. those things are therapeutic to you for me, but let yeah, me get, okay. let me get there. Okay. So I think that it is important to 
recognize in yourself if you need to take a break from it because there's so much negative shit on there or there's so many things that might maybe make you think less of yourself or something like that. I have a friend who I love very, very much who has become very, very successful for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I'm very proud of her, but she posts about it a lot and about how much money she's spending and all this stuff. And it kind of makes me feel like shit and it's not her intention. And it really shouldn't even be my, I mean, like it's, that's just standards that I'm holding to myself. But like, you know, I look at how I'm kind of struggling financially or whatever, what my own goals are. And it's just hard not to compare yourself when I think culturally we are um, conditioned to feel that way. So, and then especially with like the political climate and everything like that, there is a constant sharing of bad news to the point where I think that it can pile up and become emotionally negative. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's very important to recognize when it is becoming overwhelming so that you can step away from that. <clears throat> that being said, um, social media is as useful as a resource as you can or are willing to make it. Um, I have wanted to get rid of it a number of times, but I write books and I don't market them really except to mention them on my social media platforms. And then also, um, I do write about the things that I'm going through. And uh, that's cathartic for me in a sense that it's an outlet for me. I mm-hmm. view my Facebook as it's my my Facebook. My posts are what I choose to do it. And I, you know, I, I put out exactly what the things that interest me or the things that I'm feeling or the things that I want to share. And some people don't like that. I don't give a fuck because they're not they're They have their own Facebook. They can yeah. choose to unfollow if they want to. They shouldn't dictate what I'm putting on mine. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, in the last few years, especially since I found out that I was going through bipolar depression, you know, I worked with you with the Anchorage press. And one of the articles that I did was that gorilla depression, which was about seasonal affective disorder, mm-hmm. which in Alaska and other Northern States is a very serious condition where people find themselves in throes of depression that they might not normally experience otherwise. Um, or if they do normally have depression, it's, it's exacerbated by the changes in um, the solar cycles and the, the long winters and things like that. And that was just kind of like, not really the start, but probably the biggest step that I took toward acknowledging and vocalizing mental illness on a broader spectrum. And it's become a goal of mine to destigmatize mental illness um, to make people who suffer from it know that they're not alone and that there are resources out there available for them to help people who do not suffer from mental illness, recognize it in their friends and, and find healthy ways to help their friends when necessary, um, or to educate themselves on it, um, to help everybody. But, you know, um, men in particular have a hard time becoming vulnerable in a sense, um, and talking about, suicidal ideation or anxiety, um, insecurities, things like that. And these are conversations that need to be had. And these are things that need to be talked about so that this isolationist feeling goes away. Um, and so that people can feel comfortable with asking each other for help. I don't, I'm not going to sit here and take credit, full credit for this at all by any means. But since I have been talking about it, I have had an influx of people, both men and women, 
um, reaching out to me publicly and privately to talk about their own issues or to talk about how they've started to feel more comfortable in sharing things themselves. I have seen a huge change in my own Facebook feed amongst my friends of people being open about when they're feeling down, when they're feeling depressed, Mm -hmm. when it's a hard day and they need help, or if they need something like just share funny memes, share pictures of your animals, you know, to be able to vocalize this vulnerability in this, um, this scary dark place, you know, when you're having a negative day and it's difficult to get out of bed, when you're having, um, self-confidence issues and you think that you're just pathetic and you're not to be able to vocalize that and feel comfortable doing it with their friends so that they can reach out and get, you know, funny memes or animal pictures yeah, or to even just have someone listen you know, and I think that one of the things, if I have a piece of advice to people who maybe don't have depression, um, you should always ask your friends, is this something that you want advice on or to talk about, or is it something you just want me to listen to? Mm-hmm. Because those are two different feelings and those are two different, you know, interactions. And it really just depends on the person who's going through the shit to kind of let you know what's going to best help them. Um, but to even get to the point where they're asking for help is a, is a huge change for the positive i think and it's good to um can you know keep that conversation going so that's that's been a goal of mine and i think that facebook has helped facilitate that in certain ways but i think that um you know all things in moderation so we've talked about this before and i think it would be interesting to talk about here there have been a number of times when people have lashed out at you on social media because of your openness about your depression maybe without saying any saying any names could we talk about what that's like and why you think those people do that it's low-hanging fruit it really is just the easiest thing to cut to um i think it bothered me a lot early on Mm -hmm. but it's uh bothered me less and less now just because like i just don't think that anyone can hate me as much as I hate me in my worst days. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, uh, if someone's going to make fun of me for feeling these feelings, like I already feel pathetic for feeling these feelings sometimes. So, um, it's not really like a, it doesn't have the same effect on me personally as Mm. it, as it used to, or that I think some of these people hope it might. Um, but I understand that there are people who have these feelings that, you know, are struggling with that. And so that can feel like it's compounding the ideas that they already have of themselves, or it's a a confirmation of some sort. And it shouldn't be. Um, I think that people are uncomfortable with the conversation a lot of the time. Um, And so they just write it off or they're, they're flippant about it or they ignore it and they don't um, maybe respect it as much as it, as it should be respected. Like if you make a joke about it, then it's not as real as it is. I make jokes about suicide all the time, but I mean like, you know, it's because I think about it all the time. I think about it every day. Like it's just a constantly lingering thought in my head. But But I think that you making a joke about suicide is a lot different than someone saying, go kill yourself or sending you a direct (laughs) message and they they're malicious about it sure yeah i've had people say that like you know they're tired of my sob stories or my pity parties or things like that and um you know that's i think that it's like a fundamental 
either misunderstanding or um, or disregard of the kind of the deeper issues behind it. Mm-hmm. I'm not when I talk about you know I'm going through a hard time. It isn't for sympathy. Or it isn't because I'm feeling sorry for myself. It's just kind of acknowledgement that like this is a struggle that I'm going through. You're normalizing it. Yeah. If I had like a fucking broken toe and I mentioned stubbing it against the bed frame and I was just like, wow, that just makes it even worse. Then people can, okay, yeah, no, I understand that. That sucks. That hurts. Yeah. You know, it's just like, oh, this is a shitty thing that happened to me today. Um, But I think that like uh, they don't say that when they're trying to be friends with me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They, they say it when they're trying to hurt me and they do it because it's low hanging fruit because they're just trying to, um, I don't know, because they think it's something that I should be ashamed of or that I should feel bad about. But that's, that's the whole thing is like my whole point is that you shouldn't feel ashamed or feel bad about it. Yeah. And like, that's something that like, not only have I kind of come to terms with, um, but that I'm trying to like spread that message. So for someone to, to come in and attack me in that kind of way is just, um, it's like pissing in the wind really. Mm-hmm. What's it like when someone tells you to just get over it? Hmm. Um, I mean, well, I mean, people, I think a lot of times misunderstand mental illness, uh, because they don't have it, um, or when they don't have it, rather. But it's an illness, you know. It's the same thing as like having a kidney that doesn't work, mm-hmm. or um, a lung that works at half capacity. You know, uh, it's the same as having like a cataract in your eye, or cancer. It's something that needs to be. Th- there are medications for it. Um, I don't personally take medication, although I probably should. And there are people who have had different reactions to medication. For some, it's given them a sense of normalcy in their life that they had lacked before. Other people have really negative reactions to it. So that's kind of one of those things. It's like any any medication for any sort of physical ailment that you have, it's got to go through um, sort of a trial process to find something that's going to help your body regulate and give it what it needs to be healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just get over it. You can find things that help it. But it doesn't go away. It's not like you just can opt out of the brain malfunction mode. Um, although that would be nice. It probably costs a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like a premium. <laughs> um, so I, I, th- I think that when they say it, it, it's, uh, it comes from a fundamental misunderstanding of the situation, of the ailment. And that's not necessarily bad. But it is something that can be corrected and it's something that should be, you know, you should always encourage um, education when you hear that because it's either coming from a place of ignorance or it's coming from a place of malice. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I try not to get too worked up about it. So you mentioned that you don't take medication. Why don't you take medication? Um, part of it's a money thing. Uh, I, I, you know, I move a lot. Like I've, I've been, I've been, uh, fortunate enough to have jobs over the last, I don't know, eight years, 10 years that like I've, I've had for a, a serious amount of time. So I probably could have utilized insurance to kind of work towards that. But in order to get like medication, you usually have to find a psychiatrist who you, then you have to vibe with 
And then that psychiatrist has to determine whether or not you're eligible for medication. They have to refer you to someone else that would then determine what kind of medication you're going to be on. And then you would need to have the insurance to cover the medication. So it's a long process that involves a lot of trust and a lot of money and um, insurance stability. And I think I got so accustomed to not having that stability and insurance for a long time that um, <laughs> by the time I got around to thinking about it, I was usually on my way out the door to the next stop of the next adventure. Okay. And then part of it too is just like, I just don't think this is, I don't, I probably shouldn't even, I don't know if I should say this, but um, I personally am like concerned that medication might curb my creative edge. And I think at this point in my life, I've lived with the depression and the anxiety for so long that I'm not entirely comfortable with uh, sacrificing creativity and like my drive and capacity for writing, which is really the only thing that gives me like genuine satisfaction for like, I don't know, normalcy mentally. Like I, I'm, I'm comfortable in this. I'm not like, I'm not a happy person, but I'm not necessarily unhappy if that makes sense. Um, like I'm not just sad all the time. That's not, that's not how I function. Mm -hmm. I get happiness out of things. I get, you know, um, satisfaction out of a lot of things, but like the one drive that I really have, the one thing that I have always, always since I was a kid, you know, since I was writing short stories in like third grade has been writing and stories. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's a thing that is as fundamental to who I am as the capacity to breathe, you know? or the need to eat. I have this need for stories mm -hmm. and I worry that if like something that will help give me that chemical balance in my brain might take away the only thing that like I'm really living for. Uh, I don't know if that's a sacrifice that I kind of want to make. You know, what's interesting about that is I think that that's a pretty common concern with creative people. Um, and it cuts both ways, right? You have creative people who, have to have alcohol or have to have, you know, that pill in order for them to be the person that writes that story or, you know, creates that, that painting. Yeah. And there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of sober, um, artists too. And there's, sure. and there's a lot of, uh, artists that, you know, don't have to deal with, um, I guess mental ailments and stuff like that. And I'm super proud of them and happy for them, <laughs> but I'm just not one of those guys. That's, that's me personally. And that's not advice that I'm trying to give to anyone else. I think that if medication does help you find a happier, um, method of living and a sense of normalcy, then you should absolutely seek out that Avenue. Um, but this is a podcast about me. So, uh, <laughs> that's just not the route that I've taken. What do you think have been some of the long-term effects of depression? Um, I've developed a pretty good sense of humor. <laughs> um, I don't know. I'm sure that like, I'm sure that like physically I probably look older sometimes than maybe I would have just the stress. I'm sure that the, uh, effects that the stress has had on me, but I'm mostly healthy, like outside of everyday, like the, so here's the thing. I don't know if you're, 
you know, suicidal ideations, like the idea of dying, like the, the, the lure of dying. Are you familiar with that? I'm not sure if I am. It's kind of, well, so like sometimes I'll just be sitting on like the side of the road and I'll just like a, a thought will cross through my mind about like throwing myself into traffic or like jumping off a bridge. And it's just a very spur of the moment, spontaneous thing. And it's just kind of like life is fleeting, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and it like bothers people to tell them that like, I think about that every single day, every day. There's not a day that goes by. It doesn't mean that I want to do it. It's just a thought that I think of. Mm -hmm. And that's not a normal thing for most people. Um, but like outside of that, like, I think I'm a perfectly healthy person. You know, I could lose 10 pounds, but, oh, and I have like really bad sleep apnea, but that's not depression related. It's sinus related. Yeah. So it's like, I think that, uh, just generally, I, I don't know that I've had any longstanding effects except for maybe just a different perception on life and maybe art, but, Mm -hmm. um, and like human interactions, but, uh, those are all just kind of like conscious things. Those are just, you know, mentality things like, uh, um, so I guess in that sense, the long-term effects are that I just have kind of a, uh, I don't want to say unique, but a certainly influenced perspective on life mm-hmm. and death. You know, if you were to give someone advice about coping with depression, what would it be? Well, um, you're not alone, for one. And it's it's really easy to think that, especially when it gets bad. Um you do have somebody, even if it's a stranger. I think that it's really easy to disregard strangers, but they can be a valuable resource. You know, life is so fleeting on this planet that what it boils down to me is just a series of interactions and accomplishments and just things that like get you through the day to day. Life is a series of moments. And if you can have one conversation with someone in a bar or a restaurant that you've never met before, that might just be enough to, I don't know, just take your mind away from the stuff that's really weighing you down. Um, one of the things when I was like really, really wanting to, uh, when I was like less focused on living, one of the things that kind of like kept me going was to find something that I liked. Um, like I'm a big comic book fan. And so I would just remind myself, you know, if I were to die today, I'm not going to know how this story ends. Yeah. I'm not going to know what the next episode of the show is going to be, you know, and I would find short term goals to kind of get me through the harder times. Like I would just find, you know, this movie that I've been really looking forward to comes out next month. I got to at least live to next month. And hopefully by next month, I'm not in that same dark fog anymore. So it's just finding things that like, to look forward to um, reaching out to anybody just to be able to live in that moment um, in a way that takes you away from the things that are plaguing you. Remembering that you are not alone, that there are other people who are suffering um, the same thing and, and are struggling to get through the same day and you know, that you can get through it the same way that they can. Um, you know, remind yourself that, I don't know, you're strong on the, you know, you've lived, through every day so far and there's no reason not to live through this one too you have the power over that like you have power 
um, over life, over your own life. And um, I don't know, man. I know, there's a lot of times when like people feel like it just can't get any worse. And like I've been there. And like I can always find things worse, like ways to make my own life worse. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, you know, it just, uh, it can always get better is the thing too. Yeah. And, um, and you can always just find a thing that you, you love and enjoy, even if it's just for a little while, it's just a little while longer is all. And, uh, I don't know. I probably should have given advice. I don't know. Hopefully someone can use that. No, that's great. Um, that, that does it for my questions. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, I think, uh, um, so with, uh, Winter setting upon us. I know that seasonal affective disorder is, is going to be hammering down on a lot of folks. It's going to be really important to um, do little things, even if you're having a hard time getting out of bed. Like just get out of bed for a little bit. Um, take time to maybe shower, at least wash your face, at least brush your teeth. It doesn't even have to be big things. It could be lots of little things to just try to get you through the day so that you're feeling at least a little bit productive. You don't have to do everything at 100%. 50% is fine. 25% is okay. As long as you're just making sure that you are going through motions that allow you to feel normal, um, be communicative when you can check on each other, lift each other up, I think is important. Just remind people, uh, that they've done something really cool lately or that they're looking really good. Um, anything that kind of gives them a boost of, uh, that confidence to, to carry them through. Winter is always rough on a lot of people. Summers too. Seasonal affective disorder is not just a winter thing. Like uh, it's also, you know, in Alaska, I was I was worse in the summertime. So long, long days and everything too. And the same kind of rules apply. Just make sure that you keep yourself moving even a little bit at a time, and uh, and just be communicative. Uh, don't be afraid to voice how you're feeling. Not everyone's going to understand. Um. I'm going to keep trying to help people learn, but in the meantime, like know that, uh, you know, there are people out there that get it, that do understand and that, um, you know, that you're going to be okay. So I guess that's what I have to say. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thanks to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives for their support at the company man level. This conversation was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.